0: On the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord. There, God. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for the opportunity you give us to gather in your holy name. God, just sing about your, your, your holy work among us. Father God, I pray that we would not take for granted the gracious gift that you've given us to come into your presence and to worship you and experience you. Lord, we just love you, God. We ask that you, your name be honored. Lord, that you would get the glory for all that we do, all that we say, Father God, and that your word would speak to us through us this morning. God, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' holy name. Church, this morning we begin to lean into an area of this process that we've talked about in restoration and what God does and how God begins to work. And and as we begin seeing and and talking about the work of of God's Word and how that plays into our life and how that influences and, and kind of guides and directs our steps... This morning we begin to see that spiritual reform kind of take some action into response. And this morning we see a very specific response that that we talk about in church that we lean into, but maybe we don't have a total understanding of what that looks like in our life, how, how it's supposed to play out, how it's supposed to be. But as Nehemiah has led the people to this spiritual reform, he started with God's Word, which is the basis at which everything that we do, every movement that we make, every truth that we hold dear to, and every instruction that we follow is found in His Word. And now it's leading them into response. And so as we continue to move through the rest of these chapters, a lot of what we're going to see is their response to the work of restoration that God is doing in them. And so as as the people of God, as people, God's chosen people. That if we stand as Christians this morning, then there is a particular response that is should be coming from us, uh, res- uh, kind of flowing out from our life based on our encounter with God and what He is doing and what He's planning to do. And so now it's leading them into response, and the response that we begin to see or begin to see here, church, this morning, is the response of repentance. Is the response of repentance. And so just to kind of lay a little bit of groundwork for repentance because you know I know it's when we talk about repentance we we talk about it in the church a lot and it's typically related to salvation and it's absolutely intertwined with salvation but I think it's very important for us to understand first and foremost what is repentance and and what is where are we even going with this? And what we'll use and we'll see from the children of Israel as we kind of navigate that space. And so repentance, the word, the Greek word metanoia, it means a change in mind. A change in mind, which I think is very important. You know, a lot of times when we talk about repentance, the the place at which we start with it is we start with it and it can be communicated as a turning away. But, and, and, and it's not that these things aren't, Together, collectively, but they're not one and the same. And so when we begin to see this, and I think this is very important, because when we consider real change in our lives, real change begins in our minds, right? Real change begins in our hearts. When the Bible talks about our heart, it's kind of speaking of it as, as kind of this intellectual part and kind of this motivating part of who we are. David writes in Psalm 139, 23 through 24, he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Because what does the Bible also say? From our heart flows what? Right? From our heart flows our actions and our things and in, in the, in the nature of our minds. So he says, uh, David says, Psalm 139, 23 through 24, he says, Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. And so he says, David is acknowledging that the path at which I walk and the actions at which I live are going to come from this place, Lord, that I'm asking you to search out, and I'm asking you to search my heart, right? What drives me, what motivates me, and not only my my heart, but my thoughts, the things that I'm thinking about. The things that I'm allowing in. In the New Testament, he talks about the eyes being the window to our hearts, right? Because what we see, what we take in is what affects us and what guides us and what leads us. And so, and he continues on. And in Romans 12, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so there's, it's the, the mind, it's this place within our mind, within our heart that affects the way that we live, the way that we walk, and not only that, but the way that we know and discern what is the will of God and what is good and what is acceptable and what is perfect. And so there's a place at which repentance must start, and the place at which repentance starts is within our mind, within the motivating aspects of the inner self of who we are, the heart, the soul, the mind, these inner things before they've even began to be a physical thing. It starts within our mind. And so the, the thing that we have to understand and, and the, kind of the lens at which we view this process through, the change of mind or repentance is, is not precisely the same as the act of turning away from sin and the visible performance of good deeds, but one leads to the other. And so we, need to con- we do need to connect those things, even though they're not, in a sense, the exact same thing. And so when we talk about changing our mind, what are we speaking about? And so we'll get to this. We'll kind of reiterate this again at the end as we kind of pull it all together. But when we talk about a changing of our mind, what are we specifically talking about our mind being changed about? So the first thing that we're talking about is our mind being changed about our sin, our transgressions, our rebellion against God, our rebellion against and our abuse of each other. And so our sin, what it and so understanding what we're asking our mind to be changed about in this manner of repentance is what it is, understanding our sin, changing our mind about our sin, what it does to us, and also what it has taken from us. Because, you know, what what sin has done to us is sin has separated us from what? Sin has separated us from a holy God. It has robbed us of the place at which God created us to be, which was with Him, in presence, in fellowship with Him. And not only with Him, but in fellowship with each other. So what sin came into the world and did, is sin came into the world and fractured our relationship to God. But it also did what? It also fractured our relationship to each other. And so it requires us, repentance is us changing our mind about our sin. Seeing it as weighty. Seeing it as detrimental. Seeing it as not only that, but damning to our eternity, right? Eternally separating us from God unless that sin is rectified. And so not only is it about changing our mind about our sin, but it's also changing our mind about God. You know, and I didn't always think about repentance this way. That repentance wasn't only how I viewed sin, but repentance is also how I view God. How I view Christ in my life. How I navigate that relationship. How I engage with Him. And so repentance isn't only about acknowledging what we've done wrong, but it's also about acknowledging God for who He is and what He's done and what He continues to do. And so when we talk about changing our mind about God, we say that He, you know, that God within our life is no longer mocked, He's no longer discounted, He's no longer ignored, that Jesus is the one to be clung to, that He is our Lord to be worshipped and adored. And so repentance is changing our mind about two things. Changing our mind about our sin and changing our mind about God and Christ Jesus. And God's intentions was to bring this about to our mind. Jesus says in John 16, 8, He says, And when He comes, He will convict in the world, or when they're talking about Jesus, And when He comes, He will convict in the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So this is a mindset that is very vital to our Christian life, is this mindset of Repentance. And and not only the the, the mindset of it, but the action of it and how it plays out in our life. And so there's three quick things that I want us to talk about this morning that I think are very important for us to understand about repentance and how repentance has a place in our life and how that place is a forever place and not a momentary place. And we'll kind of get to that as we move through. But the first thing this morning that we need to understand about repentance, as we see uh, given the example by the children of Israel here, is that repentance is personal. Repentance is personal. No one can repent for me. Right? Repentance is personal. It's something that I have to acknowledge. It's something that I have to live in. In verse 1, it says here, it says, And now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Verse 2, it says, And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Stood, in verse 2, stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Church, their response to the book of the law was to confess and acknowledge and bring about an acknowledgement of their wrongs. You know, this is what an encounter with God does, is it brings us to this place where we begin to acknowledge our rebellion. You know, and we, 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 we try to do this with our kids, too, right? So it's not too far-fetched of an idea. Like, when our kids do something wrong, we don't want it to just be that it's wrong for wrong's sake. Like, we want them to understand, do you understand why this is wrong? Like, we're trying to draw out of them, what did you do wrong? Like what was the mistake that you made? What was the rebellion? What was the, the disobedience that you participated in? That's a part of this restorative process in the process of discipline in the process of growth is an acknowledgement. And this is where changing our mind about sin, because if we don't see sin as a big deal, we don't see the, the, the effects of it in our own lives or in our personal lives and in our private lives then we won't see the need to repent. We won't see the need to bring it forward. But I love how when I was looking this up, you know, the word confess here, it literally means in its short form, it means to throw. And I love that because in in a lot of ways, what he's asking them to do is just throw it out there, right? Put it out there, acknowledging between you and a holy God what you've done in rebellion. And listen, the thing that that takes is it takes us to be humble, it takes humility. And listen, the Christian faith, like we've said over and over and over again, the Christian faith is built on humility. There is no way in the, in the life of a believer that your life grows and restores and moves forward and processes and progresses if pride is at the center of who you are. But so he brought them to this place after reading the book of the law, after acknowledging who God is, after understanding who He is, taking ownership of it, not blaming someone else for the choices that they had made, but taking ownership, stood, being visible. Not only stood and being visible, but confessed their sins, acknowledging where they had rebelled against the holy God. And then I love, as he continues on, it says, they also confessed their sins and the iniquities or the sins of their fathers. And so there's something we have to understand about this, though. is they, they, also, they confess the sins of their fathers. What this isn't acknowledging, and I think this is important for us to understand, they're not acknowledging a generational curse that had to be broken. Because God does not punish the children for their father's sins. We have, we have to know that. And I know that that's hard for us to, to, to fathom sometimes because a lot of times you, you know, there's a big difference between generational sin and generational curses. Because listen, my failure and the discipline and the, the punishment that God would elicit for me on my personal life for my sin, my sons will not have to pay the penalty for those sins. They will not be disciplined for those sins. Now it doesn't mean that they may not could fall into those same sins if I've cultivated a culture within my home around a particular sin. So that's what we have to understand. Ezekiel eighteen twenty it talks about this. If you go back and read that verse, God says He promises, "I will not punish the people for their. I will not punish the sons for the father's sins." And He says vice versa, "I will not punish the father for the son's sins." We take ownership of our sins. They are our sins. Now, like I said, we do recognize that those raised in an environment of sin may very well repeat those same sins, but not because they must, but because their environment made it an easy choice to make. And so that's us, parents, taking ownership of our sin. And you know what? Even though our children, they're not forced to make those decisions, the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we making the choice to sin easy for our children? Are we making it acceptable? Are we making it okay? Are we creating an environment where they potentially could repeat the same sins that we have? It's not that they're going to pay for the sins that we've made, but they very well may inherit the mindset if we allow that to come cultivate within our homes. And listen, this is a Christian this is a responsibility of a Christian parent that we have to keep in mind. That we have a responsibility you know, because and, and I've, I've heard this conversation, especially when you're raising teenagers. And, you know, I remember hearing it when I was a teenager. Like, Hey, teenagers will be teenagers and kids will be kids and they'll do these things. And, you know, even though they, if these things are wrong, even if they're disobedient, even if they're damning or damaging or, or detrimental to their life or their health, it's like, ah, they're kids. Let them be kids and let them experience it. But in reality, if we don't think about, like I think about the life that I lived and some of the choices I made and the things that I do and even sin that I committed years and years and years and years ago that ripple into my life now. Why would I not want to save my children from those sins? Why, why have we deme- kind of uh, taken life's experience and kind of coupled it with certain types of sin and, and certain experiential and social sins and said, well the only way that they can truly experience life is if they experience these sins the same way I did. Well, that's us creating generational sin if we're not honest with ourselves and acknowledging that. The reality, when we go through sin as Christian people and we look back at our life, listen, we should use that as a guide for how we lead and how we grow our families and how we navigate that. So we can tell, even when it's hard, we tell our our children no. Or we we, like the Bible tells us to do, be set apart and be different. Make different choices. Live differently. Not accept certain things that others may accept. Not navigate certain social spaces the same way others may navigate it. Because of our conviction. Because of what God has led us to. And if we're not using our past failures, as a platform to teach from, then our past failures are nothing but failures. But like we've said over and over and over again, if we use our past failures as a platform, then God can use that in our lives to help us navigate leading our children as they move forward and our teens and our kids as they grow. And not only that, but even for us and as they're acknowledging the sins of their fathers. You know, the hardest thing for us to do within our life sometimes is to acknowledge acknowledge. The sin of people who we love and care about and who raised us, right? We don't like to look at our parents. We don't like to look at our grandparents and, and evaluate their obedience to a holy God if they claim to be Christian or even if they weren't. It's hard for us to acknowledge the fact that they, were pro- they may have been wrong about this, they may have done this wrong this lifestyle that they chose, this way that they chose to talk, this way that they chose to act, this way that they chose to lead, this way that they chose to to teach us, it may not have been right. But we learn. We learn from each other. You know, I mean, if we, as, 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 as husbands and wives, church, if we're not learning from our parents' mistakes, to be better husbands and wives in this generation... Then it's all wasted because that's what God has called us to. God has called us to evaluate and to learn and to move forward and to, to, to grow and to acknowledge things that have fallen short and that aren't according to God's will so that every hopefully every generation gets better at doing those things. But the problem is we don't always view it that way. We, we, we kind of we, we don't want to either, we don't want to look at the people who, who raised us that way, the people who were influential in our life that way. We don't want to evaluate that way. We feel judgmental. We feel critical. Listen, God has called us to this, to this mindset of growth and movement forward. Because for us, to move from from that, to move in this space of repentance, it it requires us to acknowledge it it and its influence on us in the space of our personal life and the life with our family or the people who raised us spiritually. And it helps us. It helps us know for, for, and this is what I love about the fact that they're acknowledging the iniquities of their fathers, the thing that we need to always understand, and the thing that I don't think that we always as individuals will, will acknowledge is that what this does is it helps us know that our sin never only affects us. Our sin never only affects us, even the most private sin carries public effects. I want to say that again. Even the most private sin carries public Public effects. Because listen, even in, you know, a lot of times people justify certain sins because they will say it's not affecting anybody. It's just affecting me, right? It's just my thing or my issue or whatever it might be. But it's never the case. It's never the case. Because every sin affects us at our core, especially the sin that we allow to stick around. Especially the, those sins, because it, those sins will motivate us. Those sins will control us. Those sins will move us in our lives. And you know, and so the thing that I love about this in, in Nehemiah chapter nine, and, and I really want to encourage you to go back and spend this week really reading through Nehemiah chapter nine, because what you're going to do is when you read this, you're going to look into a mirror. You're going to see this nature of God's people in their story. And I love that about Nehemiah 9, and as you read verses 5 through 36, you see them mention their story, which I think is amazing. I love the fact that the Bible doesn't shy away from the failures of God's people. It really brings them to the forefront. And so part of repentance is, 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 and what's so vital about it is repentance requires us to know our story, not for the sake of shame, but an understanding of who we are before a holy God and how God intervenes and acts in the life of His people. Church, repentance requires us to know our story. Not just the good, but the bad. To reflect on it to make mention of it. I mean, they're, they're standing together and they're proclaiming this. I mean, really, the books of the law that they read from are a story of Israel's failures. But not just that. And not meant to be a focus just of shame. But I love how Paul puts this, and we've talked about this before, but in 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death i love that because a lot of times as christians we we you know especially kind of in the fluffy uh you know uh, fluffy christianity that we live in today is like we don't want to acknowledge the bad we don't want to acknowledge our past we don't want to acknowledge what we've done wrong we don't want to acknowledge the fact that we have wrong now that we deal with because we shouldn't have to feel grieved you know who who i am in the lord is all that matters but I love when Paul says this, he, he's putting into perspective the fact that, listen, our perspective of our sin and its effects against us and the people around us and our relationship to a God are vital. Why? Because when we have that understanding, it produces something in us, and it produces grief, and grief is not always bad. For our hearts to be grieved about our sin and the wrong that we've done is not a bad thing. Listen, when we lose someone in our life, what do people tell us? You need, what do they say you need to do? You need to what? You need to grieve because it's healthy. It's healthy to grieve. Because why? Because it helps you process the value that that person had in your life. It helps you process the memory of who they are. It helps you process how to move forward. And listen, when we acknowledge the weight of our sin and its effects on our life, it will produce grief within us. But why do we need that grief? Because that grief helps us process it. That grief helps us understand what it's done to us. And that grief also helps us understand how to move forward despite our sin. Because what does that godly grief do? He says that godly grief leads to salvation. That's what we want. We we want rescue to happen. For our children. We want rescue to happen for ourselves. We want rescue to happen for our spouses. We want rescue to happen for an unsaved world. But it begins at grieving the fact that we are broken and in desperate need of something that we cannot do for ourselves. And It requires us to grieve a little bit. Because it leads us to something. Rather than, and I love this, salvation without regret. The other thing is this. Whereas worldly grief produces what? Death. To be grieved strictly by, driven by, manipulated by, simply the things of the world, he says, that grief leads to death. And then I love this as we kind of connect into this next one. Matthew 3.8, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The second thing is this, repentance is a practice. Repentance isn't a moment. Repentance is a practice. He says in verse 2, I'm sorry, in verse 1 he says, And the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth, and with earth... On their heads, And so we see that their repentance, it leads them to this moment where they are assembled. They're gathered together, not hidden in isolation. It was meant to be a discipline of their lives. That part of their repentance process was an aspect of the gathering. And listen, that's what we do together as Christians. We practice our repentance within the scope of our prayer, within the scope of our worship, within the scope of our reading of God's Word. It is a practice of repentance. But it's something that we must do together within focus of each other. The spiritual disciplines that God has given us within the local church, the, 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 the liturgy that we do, it is meant to be a public reflection and practice of the gospel and what God has done for us. And part of the gospel is what? Our repentance. God, I've done wrong. God, you've rescued me from the punishment of that wrong. And I celebrate that today. It's a practice of our repentance. And not only that, but he says that they were practicing Fasting, and that they were covered in sackcloths. So these sack cloths were basically burlap sacks that they would put on and they would wear and it would mean meant to be a representation of their lack, a representation of their depravity, a, la- a representation of their poverty and that their fasting was a practice of self-denial. Which is 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 words that we don't like to hear together within our life, right? Self denial, denying myself something, sacrificing something, self neglect. But he says this is part of our repentive process, and and that's part of the understanding of the weight of sin. Because what really what is changing our mind about sin and turning away from sin is denying ourselves some momentary. Pleasure, momentary satisfaction, momentary joy for eternal joy, right? And so fasting is a part of that repentance practice, telling myself, no, I don't need this. I don't need this habit. I don't need this momentary satisfaction. I don't need this to make me feel valuable. I don't need this to make me feel worthy. I don't need this to make me feel full or, or fulfilled or satisfied. Self-neglect, self-denial. Part of our repentive process is fasting, and listen—it's not just food fasting; it's physical fasting too, in other senses, denying ourselves. And not only that, but he says in verse two, he says the Israelites also—a part of their repentive process—says the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners. And so what does that mean? Listen, this is not some acknowledgement for, for us to, to deny hanging around or being around people who are considered foreigners. It's, it's a representation because remember, God's people were God's chosen people and they were the people who, who understood holiness. They were the people who had been given the law, the only people who had the law, right? They had the law. They understood the moral code that God had called them to and they were the people who had a moral standard to live by. And so when he says here that they separated themselves from the foreigners, what he's saying is is they separated themselves from the people who did not have the same moral code that they did according to their living, according to their actions, according to their guidance. And so there's something within that, within the practice of repentance in our life. Remember, it's it's not only turning away, but it's changing our mind about how certain things affect us. And so it's us making a decision to separate ourselves Not to completely disregard our influence, but separating their influence within our lives that lead us down different moral paths, that lead us down different paths of disobedience, that lead us down paths that are away from God. That's a decision we have to make. It's something that we have to decide. God told them, and there's several times throughout the Bible, He says, "Listen, you need to separate. You need to not." When He would talk about not intermarrying, it wasn't because God didn't want people who were this color to not marry people who were this color. No, it was about keeping them from being morally subjugated to a, 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 a lacking moral standard that He had not established with those people yet. It was more about a moral standard that in an in a, in a obedient law that He was drawing the people into. Repentance is a practice. Being mindful. Being mindful of our influences. What are driving us to not have a changed mind? What is driving us to not view these sin as heavy as they should be? What is driving us to not see the effects and what it's having on my family or the family of someone else? They separated themselves. And then it says, And they stood up in their place, in verse 3, and read from the book of the law. They made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. I love that. What else is a part of our repentive process? Reading God's Word. They continue to practice the things that not only began the repentance, but would sustain and grow the repentance. Because, church, we are so prone to sin. Because we are so prone to sin, and because God is so rich in mercy, ongoing repentance should be the mark of our lives. Repentance is a process that we continuously move through, that we continuously grow, grow with. And kind of like the paradox in the Christian life is this, that, that the longer you walk with God, the more godly you become. And yet, the longer you walk, walk with God, the more godly you, and the more godly you become, the more you are aware of the terrible, terrible, terrible depravity of your heart. You know, and, and Paul was really great with this. You know, it wasn't at the beginning of Paul's Christian life, but toward the end where he said, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of. Who I, am, who I am the chief of. He did not say, among whom I used to be the foremost of all, but instead he said, I am the foremost of all. The closer Paul walked with God and gazed upon his perfect righteousness, the more he was aware of his sinfulness and even though in his daily walk he was growing in holiness. Listen, that's part of our Christian walk. You're going to be more aware of your failure the closer you are walking with God. Listen, that's why when we create distance between us and God, what do we have less of an awareness of? Our sin. Because we're not seeing Him. We're not seeing the goodness of what He's got for us. We're not seeing these things that are robbing us of the the joy that God has for us. And so, like I said, it, it, the closer we walk with God, the more aware we will be of our sin. And like we said, godly grief leads to what? Repentance. We want to be aware. We want to know. And, and I love this idea, and this will kind of carry us into the end, but you know, salvation, church, what we have to understand is salvation doesn't require a full realization of our sin and its effects doesn't require the full understanding of that. Because if you think about it, as you grow, like we said, and as we're reading here, Paul at the end of his life, he's saying that I understand my sinfulness. He would grow, have a fuller understanding of his sinfulness the further his life grew and developed over time. And so for us as Christians, salvation doesn't require a full realization of our sin, but it begins... With an understanding of our need. That I'm wrong, and that God is right, and that my sin requires a punishment, and that Jesus came to satisfy that punishment on my behalf. And because of that, I can be saved if I believe in Him and His work for me. That seems like an oversimplification. But, you know, I always think... Me me and my wife are having this conversation. KK, she always gets mad when I call her my wife. Like, people don't know who she is. But, you know, we were having a conversation this past week. And, you know, with our kids. Like, sometimes we're so afraid to let them step into spaces of faith because, well, they don't understand their sin yet. They haven't sinned enough to understand what it means to repent. You know, and, and I've had to grow and learn in this a little bit even recently. You know, like, trying to keep my children from stepping into certain things because I don't think they have a greater, great enough understanding of what it means to be saved or what it means to, to be in need and what, and, and given to what God can provide. But then we read verses where Jesus says to come with the faith as a child. But then we don't think a child's faith is good enough for to step into those things, you know? I think for us, the problem is, is that we... We don't see it the way that God sees it. And and I love that. And then when you read something like this and you understand, like repentance is a practice and we grow deeper in an understanding of our repentance as our life goes on. But what you need is you need that starting moment. Because what that starting moment does, what that moment of repentance does, when you, if you can understand that you have sin, that sin requires a debt to be paid, and that penalty is death, and Jesus Christ paid that penalty by dying on the cross for our sins because that sin separated us from a holy God, and through Jesus Christ we can have salvation based on His righteousness and not my own. That sometimes we, that seems like an oversimplification because it's like, well, they can't really, they can't step into this because they haven't sinned enough. But do we understand, like when we say it out loud, do we hear how backwards that sounds? We need them to sin more so that they can understand the weight of their sin more. You know, it, it, I just, I don't get it. I, I, I've, I've struggled with that here lately. Because when we look at repentance and we look at the process of the Christian life, what could we potentially be taking from them? We could potentially be taking a starting point in their life where, yes, they need to understand that sin is wrong, sin separates us from a holy God, sin requires an eternal penalty of death, and Jesus Christ paid that penalty so that we could spend eternity with God, and it's through believing in Jesus that we can have that salvation and His righteousness clothe us. They need to understand that. And if they understand that, this is just me. Let's let them step into it. So if they step into it, then they have that moment that, you know what? Ten years down the road, they don't need to get re-saved. They don't need to get re-baptized. We need to remind them about what God did for them. And, and it will help them know, you know what? You're just coming into a deeper understanding of your repentance. You're growing in your knowledge of what your sin has done between you and God because you've made different types of mistakes. Sorry, I kind of got off on a little thing there, but... The last thing is this, church, and we'll be done. Repentance is built on Him. And this is where we have to understand this. Repentance is built on Him. Repentance is not a work of my own. Repentance is something that God is doing within us based off of who He is and what He knows. And and I'm not going to read all these verses, but I encourage you to go back and read Nehemiah 6, uh, chapter, chapter 9, verses 6 through 37. And he starts in verse 16, he says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven. You have made the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, and the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur and the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring in the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Gergesites. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Church, repentance is built on him. And if you read through this, you will see all these moments of what God has done. God made, God preserved, God chose, God brought, God found, God made, God kept, God saw, God performed, God divided, God cast, God led, God came down, God spoke, God gave, God made known, God gave, and He told. God is at the basis of our foundation with repentance and who we understand Him to be and how we understand Him to work in our lives. It's not only personal for what we've done, not just a practice in our day-to-day church, but it's built on our understanding of who He is. This prayer in verses 6-37 through are are a collection of retellings of their history, and it is more than just a reminder of their past events and where they failed because it absolutely mentions that, that they were stiff-necked, that they were disobedient, that they forsake certain things. But I love, this rhythm, this rhythm that we see of God. And you did not withhold. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, but you did not withhold. Because why? But they and our fathers presumptu- presumptuously and stiffened their neck, did not obey. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of your wonders. In verse, and this is verse 16. He says in verse 17, but you are a God ready to forgive. You're gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them even when, and I love that, even when they made for themselves a golden calf to worship in your place, you did not withhold manna from them when they were hungry. You did not withhold water from them when they were in need. Church, if they would have waited until they had a better understanding of their sin or they were perfect to go before a holy God, they would never have these moments to rest on, to go back to and let let them stay and read publicly. Let me tell you about who God is. Repentance is built on an understanding of how God deals with His people. And how does God deal with His people? We're unfaithful. God remains faithful Brings us back to faithfulness. We become unfaithful. God remains faithful. Brings us back to faithfulness. Now listen, that doesn't mean that God doesn't allow us because in this story, in this retelling, there's also moments where He says that God stepped back and allowed the enemy to overtake them. Listen, so there are going to be moments in our lives when we're so deep in sin that God steps back and He allows the enemy to overtake. So listen, we we need to get this right. Just because... God is our Savior, and you are a Christian. It does not give you the right to sin willingly. Because why? Because our sin will bring about discipline. Our sin will bring about discipline. And part of that discipline is God removing himself, not leaving us, removing that hand of protection long enough for us to understand the repercussions of our sin. That's going to happen. But then the beauty about what our God does is that moment of reference of who he is, and what he's done, that God is gracious that God will come back, that God will restore. These people were in the mess that they were in because why? Because they were disobedient, because they were sinful, but they were God's people. So even though they spent over 90 years living in ruins, God provided them the means to restore. Listen, that's the beautiful thing about a relationship with a holy God, and that even though maybe we don't have a complete understanding of our sinfulness and its effects on us and against God now, that as we grow in that process of repentance, because our repentance is built on him and his work and his character, that we'll always have hope to step forward. That our repentance is not us being buried under shame. Our repentance is an acknowledgement of who God is and what God intends to do and how he can lead his people. It's an emphasis on God's Faithfulness. 2 Timothy 2, 25-26, it says, Correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of truth. That's the kind of repentance that we want. Not the repentance that just acknowledges wrong, but there's a repentance that changes our mind. And this repentance changes our mind about our sin and about who who God is. And it leads us to a knowledge of truth because God knows that if we have a knowledge of who He is, the truth of what He's done and the truth of what He's doing, that that repentance will continue and that growth will continue and that process and the restoration that we desperately want for myself, for my family and for my community will come through repentance because we'll understand and we'll know. And he says, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Repentance that leads to a knowledge of truth, it equips us with the keys to help not only ourselves but those around us out of the clutches of the enemy. It gives us the key to navigate that space with people. That God is equipping us with that. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness. But is patient towards you and not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. All of us. Church, the more you know, the more that you come to know God in your own heart through His Word, the more you will realize how prone to sin you really are. And this will keep you at the foot of the cross, trusting in God's free gift of grace. That's why repentance needs to be a practice of our everyday life. Salvation, church, and what this does is when we enter into this space of salvation that is us repenting, salvation breaks the power that sin once had over us. We were slaves to sin and served it willingly. Romans 6 tells us this and Romans 7. While slaves to sin, church, it was impossible to please God. Romans 8 says this. Regardless how often you turned over a new leaf, straightened up, went to church or performed righteous deeds, our souls were still enslaved to unrighteousness and we stood as a condemned people before a holy God. But when we enter into that space of salvation, through an acknowledgement of our need before a holy God, cry out to Him for salvation in belief that He can save us and that His Son Jesus died for us. As we grow in grace, as 2 Peter talks about, we overcome that sin which so easily entangles us as Hebrews tells us. Peter lists steps that we can take in our developing of our new nature and ends with the promise that if we do these things we will never stumble. Second Peter 3, uh, chapter 1, it says this, and I'm going to read through this and then we'll be done this morning. But it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of what? Because of sinful desires. Remember, repentance is changing our mind about sin and our sinful desires. It says, for this reason, very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. Listen, the more we know, the more we are equipped to control our actions. Knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, the ability to stand firm. These are actions of our repentant, repentant process. These are steps that we can truly take. Steadfastness with godliness and godliness with what? With brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Supplementing our faith with virtue. What is virtue? An understanding of what is right. Understanding of what is right for us to do, right for us to say, right for us to act. That it's our practice and that leads to knowledge. It helps us understand it and it leads to self-control and steadfastness, our ability to stay firm in it. But church, it's all about that growth and that process. Church, our holiness is the goal. But the beautiful thing is that John acknowledges that we will still sin. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Church, your repentant process doesn't mean that you'll never sin. But what it does is it tells us that what it will help us do is change our mind about our sin and change our mind about our relationship with God and that He is the center of it and not me. That He is the goal at which I pursue and not my own goals. That the things He says are right or wrong are what are right or wrong. That my sin that is robbing me or my family or my church or my community, that those sins are weighty and they need to be dealt with. And they need to be confessed. And so then I'll leave you with this as the worship team comes. And, and we'll prepare to, we're going to do the Lord's Supper this morning uh, before we sing, but... You may ask yourself this, but you don't know the extent of my sins. You don't know the extent of my sins. Well, church, that's true, I don't know. But God knows and He reveals Himself as a God of forgiveness and graciousness and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness in Nehemiah 9.17. Then you still may think, but you don't know how often I have sinned, even after coming to know Jesus. True. I don't. But God does know. And He reveals Himself here as a God who keeps on forgiving, not because people deserve to be forgiven, but rather in spite of their not deserving to be forgiven. Church, the God of the universe that we serve, He is a gracious God. And repentance starts. And and repentance is a vital Necessity, a vital element of our salvation because it requires us to acknowledge our need, our need of saving. We can't be saved from something we don't think that we need to be saved from. So church, my challenge to you this morning is this. I'm not asking the Christians to question their salvation, but I am asking everyone collectively to evaluate, have you truly ever repented before? Has your mind been changed by holy God about the weight of your sin and your relationship to Him and the weight of others' sin? And if you would call yourself a Christian this morning, I would ask you, what does the process of your repentance look like? How is it growing? How is it developing? How is it moving in your life? Is it leading you to a deeper understanding about your sin as you get closer to God? Or is sin continuously becoming less of of an issue? Are we justifying more sin now than we justified before? Listen, and we're not asking God to create us into being Pharisees. We're not asking for that. We're not asking him to make us nitpick every little thing and create to do do's and don't lists for everything. No. Church for us. It's more about what guides our own hearts and as what was the last thing of that process that Peter talked about? Brotherly affection, a concern for the people around me that eventually leads to agape love where I have a concern for the well-being of the, at the point of my love. Listen, all of it firstly begins with, with you as an individual. You know, what do they tell you in an airplane? Put on your mask before you have somebody else put on theirs, right? What does yours look like? This isn't so that you can be more equipped to judge someone else. No. This is so that you'll judge yourself and then view yourself through the lens of God, up next to a holy God, and then be able to st- step into the life of someone else and help them out. To provide the keys. What did he talk about? The keys to get out of the clutches of the enemy. So my question is, what does your repentance process look like? And what is your repentance built on? Does your process look like a practice of growing closer to Him, being in His Word, confessing, denying yourself pleasures, denying yourself self-neglect to grow deeper in Him? And then what is your repentance built on? Is it strictly built on freedom, right? To do whatever I want. Is it strictly built on shame? Or is it built on the guiding principles that... God has called us to something specific. He called us to be a holy priesthood, set apart, sanctified for Him. And is it built on the fact that our God is gracious, that He forgives, that even as you sin, even as you fall, even as you fail, that that God will still be there, that God will still pick us up, that God will still help restore. That's what they're celebrating, and that's what we celebrate this morning.